The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tung. Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. You've probably already detected that I have a bit of a horrendous cold going on, so I'm going to say as little as possible today and allow my guest, Lee Elders, to tell his story. And I'm really happy to have him on the show today because a lot of the stuff we talk about is fairly esoterical and metaphysical, and so is Lee's story. But within that story is an incredible physical commitment to his adventure And his book, which has been released recently, is called Expeditions, Gold, Shamans, and Green Fire. And Lee, I just love that title because for me, gold, shamans, and green fire, and and when I saw the word green fire, I knew exactly what that referred to. It is very much at the heart, I think, of the whole spiritual world in which we live. So congratulations on the title and welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Peter. Happy to be here. So give our listeners a, a little bit of an introduction about who you are and, and, and how you sort of set your life up for this uh, quite remarkable adventure that you're going to take us on during the show. I'll be happy to. It all began for me on the Apache Indian Reservation in eastern Arizona when I was a young child, 9, 10, 11 years of age. I did a lot of exploration on my own. Uh, My grandfather was a section foreman on the Southern Pacific Railroad, and we lived in far and out-of-the-way places, Uh, and one of these places was the uh, San Carlos Indian Reservation. So I grew up with young Apache kids, come to know them, play with them, and later become friends with them. Uh, One of my journeys around the railroad house, I used to explore the dry washes, some of the little hills around our house. I ran into a teepee one day. Back in those days, the Apaches were clearly third world citizens. They lived in teepees, they lived in hogans, and uh, they worked. some of them worked on the railroad with my grandfather. But this one day, I ran into this little teepee and I was exploring the, the markings on it and everything. And an old Apache man came out and berated me, scared the heck out of me. But later he laughed and he knew I was frightened. And so he became my friend. He told me he was an Apache medicine man. He taught me how to hunt uh, rabbits. He taught me how to track. 
track different type. Uh, for example, a rattlesnake makes a different type of form uh, in the sand than, say, a diamondback does. So I learned a lot of things from him. But the main thing I learned to do was cooperate with these people. I was blonde. In the beginning, I was blonde, outnumbered, outgunned. And uh, I lost many a rock fight until I learned how to coexist, shall we say. And I think this set me up very well. This was the catalyst for me when I went into Ecuador in the mid-60s uh, to do some exploration. And the so, way that so tell us how, how that transition took place then from Arizona to going down to Ecuador and exploration. Well, I went through the normal schooling, uh, and then later on I was, of all things, I was working in mortgage banking, and uh, I was really bored with the job and sort of bored with my life. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I really yearned for the adventure I had as a, as a youngster. And one day I found out that there was a mining company in Phoenix that was hiring uh, underwater divers for a mining uh, venture in uh, the Republic of Ecuador. So I signed on. Now, I, I had no clue about how to dive or anything else, but I figured they'll teach me. And luckily, they accepted me. We all went down as one group. There was about 15 of us, a lot of heavy equipment. And when we got to Guayaquil in Ecuador, uh, they hit the mining company with a what I call a mordida. And a mordida is nothing more than a payoff. It's a, it came in the form of a, an equipment tax. And they wanted $50,000 or they wouldn't let the mining company in. So the mining company, they said, to heck with this. They turned around and went home. I stayed. And that began... Oh, almost a nine-year adventure of exploration in the Republic of Ecuador. So tell us about that exploration. Well, it started off with, uh, I knew the river that they wanted to mine. They were doing alluvial mining, and they had uh, refurbished an old Mack vehicle. It was also called a duck during World War II. On it, they placed their dredges and everything. So this is the way they were going to mine. And so I, when they left, I knew the name of the river. So I went out there and uh, spent about two months exploring in the area. And I finally, one day, I was talking to these Canary Indians that I had hired. And they said, uh, Senior Lee, he's, they said, you don't want to work here. They said, we know a better river. It's, uh, it's three days in the jungle. But it's very pristine. There's a lot of pepas in it, meaning gold nuggets. So I said, will you take me? And they said, well, we'll take you on one condition. You'll share not only with us, but with the village. So I said, you've got a deal. So they took me in, and there was six of us that made the journey. And they carried in these, uh, what they call these uh, bateas. And a batea was nothing more than an exaggerated gold pan, sort of like the old miners up in Alaska and other places used to wash gold. Well, they had their bateas, and so we went in, took us three days, <clears throat> we got there, and of course everybody was excited to get to work that one day, and we did, and lo and behold, they were telling me the truth. In uh, a day and a half, we washed out 
two coffee cans full of gold nuggets. Now, <clears throat> on today's market, wow. But back then, gold was $35 an ounce. But still, it was a good day's work. And uh, I, I had the visions dancing through my head that night before I went to sleep of, I've got to get a dredge in here. <clears throat> well, the Indians had warned me that uh, the spirits of the mountains were very careful on who they selected to come in and mine. And I thought, well, I'm okay. But I don't know if it was my visions of uh, making a lot of money that night with a dredge, providing I could get one in. I don't know if that's what triggered the storm, but a horrendous storm hit, and we were cut off. The river was flooded. <clears throat> we ran through our supplies in five days, and finally, we made it back across the river and came out to civilization. <clears throat> now, I, to follow up on that, I sold my poke. I shared with them. And in the meantime, I contacted a friend of mine, Bob Olson from Yuma, Arizona, to ask him to come down and join me. Bob jumped at the chance. Bob was a builder. He flew his own plane, built a lot of homes. He knew construction. And I really needed him to help me build this dredge. So we finally got the dredge together, started back in. On the second day in, Everybody came down with a illness, and except me and several other of the Indians. Well, what had happened is we had hired three men as cargo carriers. <clears throat> but these three men, when they were checked out by my friend, Adriano Ventimilla, who was working as my translator, also working uh, to help me on the expeditions, he was also... Uh, working for the Court of Justice in Cuenca. And he had done a background check on these guys, and he found out, well, we had a horse thief, and we had two guys that were wanted for murder. So he said, we've got to terminate these guys right away. And I said, well, do we have to terminate the horse thief? Because out here, out, in, out there in the Oriente, I mean, that's just common occurrence. He said, no, we'll get rid of all of them. So we did. And apparently these two guys, three guys, didn't take it very kindly. They slipped back into our expedition when we started. And when we got up to the, this one lagoon, it was uh, near an old extinct volcano. And they had filled up our drinking water with water from the lagoon, which carried a heavy sulfur content. And everybody came down sick. So they got even... And we had to cancel, had to cancel that expedition to go back to Little Hell. And in the meantime, I had to walk out that night. It was like a 14-hour walk and a horrific thunderstorm. And I had to get horses, bring them back to the ridge above where the guys were. And we finally got them up and came back to uh, civilization. Well, in the meantime, <clears throat> I returned to the States. I thought, well, so much for this. About three months went by, and I got a letter from Adriano Ventimilla, the young man I was telling you about, the Court of Justice, and he said that he was in touch with a man who had a last will and testament of a gentleman that had found an emerald deposit in the Oriente region of Ecuador. 
And in his letter, which was quite profound, he said, if this is true, and I've done some background checking, and it does seem to prove that it's authentic, he said, this fine not only could change the economics of my country, but also the political situation here. He says, you've got to come back. So, so just before you go on, Lee, I'd like because before you move on to talk about the emeralds, I'd just love to hear, hear your um, understanding and your sense of the whole area of gold fever. And obviously, there were the huge gold rushes both in uh, Canada and the U.S. Uh, at almost the same time, and and always under harsh, difficult conditions. And as you're incredible, you haven't mentioned the physical aspects of the journey at all, really, but. And all the intrigue that goes with it. So just, just spend a couple of minutes talking about gold fever and, and, and what that's really like. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's unbelievable. That's why they call it a fever. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you ever saw the movie uh, with Humphrey Bogart and the treasure of Sierra, uh, Sierra Madre. But that was a classic example of how gold fever could change a man. And I've seen it happen down there uh, later on in another trip. But gold has, uh, it's just uh, a mystical pull on people. And uh, for those that find it, once you find real gold, you'll never forget what uh, fool's gold looks like. There's a total difference between the two. And the hardships getting in and... These Indians that took me in, they said that uh, uh, the journey was hard, would be hard, and it definitely was. Uh, we had three tents. I had three tents with me, and uh, we ate rice and beans. We didn't carry too many uh, canned goods, but it was up and down the hills, and my gosh, uh, I was not in shape when I started. I was in great shape when it ended, but it was just exhausting of getting from point A to point B to point C. I thought this was really tough. It was nothing compared to the jungle that I got involved with later in the search for the emeralds. But gold fever, when I was, uh, when I was uh, oh, working in Phoenix before I signed on as a diver, some of my friends and I used to go search for the Lost Dutchman gold mine, which is east of Phoenix in the Superstition Mountains. And we had fun doing it. And so I looked at it, I looked at the adventure and the search is as great as finding something. Because you're, you're really blazing a new trail somewhere. And I was told that I would be the first white man that had, had ever gone to the river called Little Hell. And that in itself <clears throat> really made me feel proud that they trusted me to take me there. Well, Lee, you certainly, you certainly were blazing your own trail. There's no doubt about that. So we'll take our first break now, and we'll return to the Emerald story with Lee Elders after the break. It's Peter Tongue for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. This is the 7th Wave Channel. On the Voice America Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. 
Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. Thank you for joining us today. Just a reminder to go to my website, www.petertongue.com, for all of the information and up-to-dates of what we're up to. Uh, a reminder to go to my events page if you're interested in joining our live Thursday morning meditation or if you'd like an MP3 uh, download of the Thursday morning meditation, just to go to www.petertongue and click on the events page. I have with me today... Lee Elders, and we are talking about a real life adventure story that Lee uh, engaged in in Ecuador. First of all, pursuing gold, and then the second aspect of the adventure was the pursuit of the green fire, otherwise known as emeralds. So, Lee, back to you. Tell us, uh, tell us what happened with the last will and testament. Well, it was an interesting situation when I returned. Uh, Adriano had the book, and uh, the man that, of course, uh, found the book and all of that. But in reading the first two pages, which was the last will and testament of Rafael Mejia, uh, there was a riddle in his last will and testament. And the reason he placed this riddle in there is because at the time he had to declare the emeralds as a part of his wealth, uh, he had to give a description of where the emeralds were. So he had a lot of enemies at that time, people, you know, already undergone betrayal, and uh, uh, there were threats on his life to reveal it to certain people. He refused. So he contrived a riddle. And the first thing we had to do is try to break this riddle, this code, if you like, that was written in 1881. Now, a little background on Mejia, to bring you up to speed here. He was a Colombian. He worked as a cascaria in the jungles of Ecuador, and the cascarias were named after the tree which bore the fruit of quinine. So literally, they harvested quinine, stacked it, harvested it, and then they shipped it by mule, and, and uh, human uh, back to Quito to where then it went on a sailing vessel into Europe. So he was working as a uh, quinine harvester. 
in the beginning. Later, he graduated to a hunter. There was quite a few men working there. <clears throat> they lived in a, in a house they called the Tambo Santa Rosa, and uh, quite a few guys to feed. So he and uh, several others were hunters. One day he was hunting, tracking a bear, and he finally cornered the bear on a ridge, and he fired his old shotgun, killed the bear. Well, in the bear's death throes, it started tumbling down the side of this hill, breaking loose foliage, rocks, and other things. So when he got to the bear and he started dressing it out, he noticed that the sun was glinting off of rocks. He saw a strange color. He saw green in white. In other words, the white matrix had green stones in them, as he put, put it. So he thought, my God, if this is tourmaline, I have more money here than I can make in a year back-breaking work out, out here in the jungle. If it's quartz, that's another story. But if it's emerald, then I'm rich beyond my wildest dreams. So at that point, he used his machete, he started chopping out the green stones out of the matrix, and finally dulled his machete. Then he used his shotgun, the stock of the shotgun, to break stones loose. Finally, he had 75 pounds, what he called tres arobas. Now it's too heavy to carry, so he pulls off his coat, wraps it around this large stone containing the green and starts pulling it away from this landslide area, which, by the way, is the source of the emeralds. It's an emerald outcropping. <clears throat> so he runs out of steam. He can't pull it too far. So finally he finds this rock, as he, as he says in the last will and testament. I found this rock that was open in the middle, large rock. So he moved the stones in there and then went back, got the meat from the bear, went back to the stones, pulled out three uh, emeralds, roughly one inch in size, and took them back to the camp. Now, when he got to the camp, he brought in uh, the camp foreman, Senor Barana, told him what he'd found, gave him one stone, the largest one inch in size, and asked him to send it to Quito, and have it checked out to find out what it is, what the value is. Barana assured him he would do this, which he did. <clears throat> well, the, the stone, uh, Maria's, uh, Mejia's emerald, I should say, had a twisting tail after that. The stone actually <clears throat> got to Quito. From there, it went to, by sailing vessel to Europe, to the Simpres Molinas Laboratory, in Paris, France. Now, uh, Mejia knew that this would take probably months before he could get an idea of what he had found. In the meantime, this is 1881, Mejia is conscripted into the army, <clears throat> the Ecuadorian army, to fight in the Civil War, and he fought in the Battle of Guayaquil, and unfortunately, he lost a leg in an artillery duel. <clears throat> and also, even more unfortunate, he was on the losing side. So being a Colombian, he was exiled from Ecuador back to Colombia. Now, here we have <clears throat> a one-legged man 
who cannot return to Ecuador and has this fortune of emeralds. Now, he finds out after he's in Colombia that the analysis by the Empress Molina Laboratory said that it was high-quality emerald, and it rivaled probably at that time what was coming out of the Muzo mine in Colombia. Well, anyway, he's exiled. He can't get back. So now he's trying to tell his family how to get to it. And his family spent years searching for it, but they couldn't find it. And where they got confused was over the riddle itself, even though he drilled them in the evenings about the Cascabel and about making a relation and what the entrance was. Entrance was but they still couldn't find it. And anyway, they gave up their search. This friend of Adriano's <clears throat> uh, was in the jungle when he saw this woman with two kids near star starvation. They had been searching for the mine, and they were out of money, out of food. He befriended them. He gave them, I think, 300 sucres, and they in turn gave him the book if he would promise to share with them. <clears throat> and that's how the book wound up in our possession, because this was a friend of Adriano's who brought the book to us. But that's the background story to Mejia. So how, so how did you then approach the riddle yourselves? Well, we approached it. The riddle was uh, very interesting. It said, like making a relation, the entrance is by the Cascabel, and it takes crossing the first river upstream on the Oriente side, east side. <clears throat> well, like making a relation really didn't make too much sense to us at the time. Uh, we couldn't figure that one out until later we found out that he was talking about this relates to that and that relates to this and so forth. That's the way he described it. <clears throat> the Cascabel, on the other hand, we couldn't find there was only three meanings that we could uh, uncover through Spanish dictionaries and elsewhere. And one of the meanings of Cascabel was a bell, of course. The other was a knob on the end of a cannon. And the third was a snake that uh, lived in the Oriente, sort of like our rattlesnake. When it made a, uh, it made a rattling sound before it would strike, <clears throat> later... This, this is months months later, we found out there was a tree in the Oriente named the Cascabel. And it was named the Cascabel because it had uh, pods uh, on the tree that when the wind would blow, they would shake these pods. Apparently there were seeds in them, and they would rattle, make a rattling sound. So we thought, okay, we've got a tree. There may be a million of them back there. We've got a snake, likewise, or maybe a thousand. So this can't be it. It's got to be something else. So later on, we found out, and this took months of research, we found out that there were several waterfalls in the area that the Shuara referred to as Cascabels. So now we felt we really had it. We had a waterfall on a river called the Santa Rosa, which he named in his uh, last will and testament, off the headwaters of a major river called the Tutanangosa. So now we had our area. So we felt we're ready to go. 
And at that point, we started setting up our expeditions. And this was late 68 when we started to go in. And the first, really the first problem after the riddle was getting there. The only way you could get to the uh, jungle outpost of Sakua was by air. You either had to charter a plane or fly in a DC-3, military DC-3, which we did both. And a lot of the times we couldn't fly. I mean, we'd spend weeks waiting for weather to clear before we could fly in. And another horrible problem with flying into the area, which was about a 45-minute flight, was the fact we had to fly through the passes, jungle-laden, encrusted passes, up to eight, nine, ten thousand feet with these airplanes. And when it's milky white, and they would have to fly by a clock on the wheel. They had so many degrees, so many minutes this way, so many minutes that way. Well, unfortunately, one airline went out of business because it lost all of its DC-3s in one year in plane crashes. The military took horrific hits because they lost a lot of planes and helicopters. So we were very fortunate. I, uh, I, was on, I was supposed to take one flight, but I had missed it. I was in Guayaquil. I couldn't get out of Guayaquil to Cuenca. We had a charter flight. And I didn't get there in time, so they took four other explorers in. The plane crashed. They never found it. To this day, I don't think they've ever found it. And everybody was presumed dead. So I missed one plane that went down. Then I had another DC-3 that I was coming out on that lost its hydraulics, and we almost crashed. So it was a very... uh, shall we say, touchy situation flying in and out of that area. But once we got in, okay, then it was another totally horrific story of trying to uh, make your own trail, cutting, slashing, hacking through very thick jungle, going up this river, which, by the way, had no trails, and trying to maintain our bearings of which river we had to cross, or what river we had to stop at and try to ford another river. Uh, this took a, quite a few expeditions in itself. So, Lee, we're up to our second break. So we'll take that break now and we'll return to discover what happened uh, around the emeralds after this break. Peter Tong for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. 
listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. Thank you for joining us today. I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors for this series of shows. Sherry Chase of Chase International Real Estate Company in beautiful Lake Tahoe and Reno, Nevada. And also Matt, our regular engineer on this show, and Brandy Jackson, my producer, for creating the opportunity for me to bring such great guests to you, our listeners, to have a really broad uh, understanding and perspective of uh, different spiritual journeys that uh, the human family are on. And today's adventure with Lee Elders is is quite an extraordinarily unique adventure, both spiritual and very physical. So Lee, you were in the jungles of Ecuador having deciphered a riddle and now seeking under very challenging conditions the rich emerald. What happened? Well, the first thing, we one of the rivers we had to cross one day, we were on land that was owned by this man called Antonio Necta. And his brother-in-law stopped us and wouldn't allow us to go any further. He says, you're on our land. You'll have to get permission from Necta. Well, that was a godsend in a way because Necta found out later. He became a friend. He led some of my expeditions later. But he was a shaman, and he belonged to the Unsuri Shuara tribe. And they are the original headhunters of that part of the region, of the western Amazon. Lucky for me that uh, Nekta was a good shaman, because there's two types of shaman back there, the good and the bad. And he was a Panera Uwissen, which is a cure. He worked with botanicals from the... Uh, jungle itself, and he also uh, helped people who had spells cast on him by the evil shaman. But anyway, he joined our team, and without him, we would have never made it up to an area called the Kyanade. The Kyanade was a place where it was the jungle was so thick in there, it was double, triple canopy. Uh, we had been warned about the jaguar, what they call the Niawas. The Niawas were restless. They'd hunted out a lot of game in there. And we were told that they were they hunted in packs. Now, this is un, unheard of. No one had ever heard of, uh, of cats hunting in packs before. And uh, so this was in the back of my mind, as well as all the snake stories that I'd heard. But the main thing was <clears throat> the Shuara people, they believe that our everyday life is nothing but an illusion. It's a lie. The real life is when they take ayahuasca and they communicate with the spirits, the forest spirits, the forest guardians. And that is uh, the forest guardians and the spirits dictate their lives. And I found out this was very true because when we got up there to get into this area, we had a guide with us who refused to go unless he talked with the spirits that evening before we would leave the next morning. 
And he said that it's not, if they say that we can't go, then he's not going. So that night, uh, he didn't take ayahuasca. He said he would communicate with them in a different way. Next morning, I got up. I was excited. I thought, well, are we going? Are we staying? He says that they've given us permission to go into the Kayanade. But there are two Kayanades, one and two. Whatever we, whatever happens, we were not supposed to spend the night on the bank of this river in Kayanade number two. We had to pull back to Kayanade number one. These are the instructions he's getting from the forest guardians. Also, the next uh, when we got ready to leave, he said he was very moody and withdrawn, and neck to ask him what was wrong, and he said, <clears throat> "There are too many people." The, the four spirits said that they uh, there was five of us. They said that only four can go. So here was my first test and my first recognition of what we call spirit numerology. And sure enough. Uh, we decided, well, we'll let the young guy stay in camp. And our guide said, no, it's not up for you to decide. It's up to the spirits to decide. So we went to bed that night. Next morning we got up, the, young, or the youngest member of our team was very ill. He could hardly move. So um, the only thing I could think of, well, was the spirits uh, picked the right guy. Or they caused him to have this illness so he couldn't go. So now we're down to four people, which is okay. We make the trek up, and it's very, very difficult because we're cutting a new trail. We're trying to stay by this main river that uh, we believe is the Santa Rosa River. And uh, we, uh, we'd, the first day, we'd go up half the, half the time. Then we'd have to come back to our base camp. So we were really doing not too much exploration. And so finally, we decided, well, we've got to push deeper in, and maybe everything will be okay. And so we did. We pushed real deep in that day, and we lost track of the sun. And here we are. We got trapped that evening in this area where the spirit guardians told us not to go, and not especially not to be there at night. And uh, that was the beginning of... I think my transformation of literally believing that the spirits did dictate everything going on in there, especially with the Shuar Indians, and now I'm a part of it, so I've got to go with the flow, and I did. And that night was a horrible evening because at the first light of the moon, we heard this whistling sound all around us, a shriek, almost like a flute sound high-pitched flute coming from the trees all around us. And uh, Nectar said, uh, it's, the, uh, it's the snakes, the Verdes laurels, and that's a tree viper, and they're hunting nesting birds. Well, we had camped in the heart of one of the dangerous vipers, I guess, in South America, and we're camped underneath them. And that night, they're in a feeding frenzy with parrots and macaws and everything else. <clears throat> and we shouldn't have been there. Then, another thing that happened is these orbs came in. And I saw these in my own eyes. They were about the size of basketballs, I would say. <clears throat> they came in across the river we were camped on. 
And they floated around. They seemed to have geometry. They seemed to have intelligence with them because they'd stop by a boulder, move around the boulder slowly. <clears throat> and Nectar said, right now they're monitoring our fate. And I said, well, what can we do? And they said, nothing, except take fear out of your life. You've got to eliminate the fear. Well, that's part pretty hard to do when you've got snakes above you and you've got orbs in front of you. <clears throat> but we managed to uh, eliminate fear and try to think as one, think positive, and everything worked out okay. Uh, the balls of light dissipated, went back into the jungle. Uh, we had lit a roaring fire in front of this cave we'd found. We, we were hunkered down in a cave by the river, and we lit the fire, and the smoke got rid of the snakes. And so the next morning, we limped out of there back to uh, our safe zone. <clears throat> but by this time, I'm really convinced that the spirit guardians are dictating everything in there, and the Shuara are really telling the truth when they say that uh, these dis dis discarnate, some of it was discarnate energy. Some of it was just, I think, the forest itself, energy from there. I don't know. But uh, I came out, and this was like 1969. So at that point, I said, I'm through with with searching for the emeralds. So I came back to the States, and it was almost 18 years later. I had this series of dreams that brought me or took me back to Ecuador. And the dreams were so real, they were accompanied by sound. And I could see Nacta begging me. This is the shaman friend of mine. He was begging me to come back to Ecuador. He said he was in trouble. He needed help. And I was the only one that could help him. So by this time, I'm married. I, I've had career moves. I've been doing a lot of things. Ecuador is the last thing on my mind. But I knew I had to go back. And I did. <coughs> Excuse me. But when I got back to Ecuador, and this was 1988, I met with Jesus, uh, the shaman's brother-in-law. He told me that Nectar had lost his heart fire. And the heart fire to the Shuara is a life force within him. It's what makes their eyes sparkle. It's also a method in which they can examine uh, the purity of thought and purity of heart from a foreigner, which they called a colonial. Anyone outside the Shuara tribe <clears throat> was considered a colonial, including me, including Ecuadorians. And so I said, okay, I'll try to help him best I can, but I don't know what to do. And he said, just because you're here, we'll help him. About an hour later, Nekta arrived, he hugged me, and he said, he said, look, the Federation is watching me. They think I've divulged secrets to the Colonials. And I said, are you talking about me and working with me to help find animals? And he said, no, it's, it's, it's more than that. And he really didn't want to answer that question, so I assumed that was the problem. So I contrived at that point a bogus expedition. I would take him two cargo carriers. We would wander around out in the jungle for two or three days. If he was being watched, 
they'd say, well, okay, he didn't tell this guy anything. And we'd come back and everything would be okay. Well, in the process of doing this, uh, we, we stopped at Wakani on the way back, which is, was his uh, hacienda up there. And his family was there, and uh, I had a chance to speak with him, and I asked him if Nectar's problem was me. They said, no, no, it's, it's, uh, it's a tribal. It's a tribal thing, and it has nothing to do with you. And I said, okay, fine, that's good to know. Well, anyway, <clears throat> Nectar at that point said that he wanted to cross the big river and go up into the Cayenne with me. And... Uh, I said, okay, let's do it. And by that time, they had built a cable bridge across the Tutanangosa. And I might add, this was cable that for years I had shipped in, clamps cable, hoping to get a bridge over there. <clears throat> and they finally had built one. So we took the bridge, went over, and uh, then a lot of strange things started happening. So let's hold there, Lee, and, and we've got one segment left, and when we come back, we'll hear the culmination of this whole fascinating story. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. The 7th Wave Channel on The Voice America Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Seek greater awareness. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. Having with you today, Lee Elders, whose book recently published, Expeditions, Gold, Shamans, and Green Fire. So, Lee, if anybody wants to get hold of your book and, and your work, uh, what's your information, website, and so on? Oh, oh yeah. Go to www.leeelders.com, or if you have a Kindle or uh, like ebook device, go to Amazon. Uh, you can order it through them or order it through me. And uh, anyway, it's available in Nook and an iPad and uh, Kindle and also in hardback. Right. Thank you. So we're coming to the conclusion of this fascinating journey, and you're now off with Nectar on your own little expedition. So 
tell us how this story unfolds. Oh, well, it was really interesting because the first evening when we got across, he Nekta sort of sprang to life. He had juices flowing again. He was excited and so forth. Uh, he, we built our camp, and uh, that night we built a fire, had smoke going. Sitting, I was sitting outside the tent. He walked up to me, patted me on the shoulder, and he asked me a very curious question. Uh, he asked me if I believed in the Bible. Now, this is a shaman who at one time when I first met him had no love for any missionaries or Catholic priests or anything else. He was totally immersed in tribal tradition. But here he's asking me about the Bible, and I said, yes, I believe in it. He says, do you believe that uh, when you die, you will have a mansion in gold waiting for you as you pass over, as you die? And I said, well, it's interesting you should say that. My grandmother believed that. She raised me. And I believe that uh, you will find what you're searching for when you pass over. I believe that is true. He patted me on the shoulder and went into the tent, went to sleep. At that point, the dream I had had surfaced in my mind again that brought me to Ecuador because I saw him holding in his left hand looked like a large gold nugget. In the right hand looked like a large emerald. And I, I, I felt this was symbology of him trying to make a decision as to which way he wanted to go. Did he stay with the Namura? Namura is what they call the emerald or the green stone. Is that the way to go? That's tribal tradition. Or does he go with the, uh, the white man religion? And I felt that I had given him good advice. And I didn't know which path he would accept. But anyway, that was, I felt my mission had been accomplished. That's why I was back to help him make a decision uh, in that area. <clears throat> and so the next morning we get up, I hear this whacking noise. I peer outside the tent, and here's a young shawara uh, with a machete banging it against a tree, berating Nekta, asking him, who are these people? Who are you? Why are you camped on Shawara land? And so forth. So I crawled out of the tent, and I knew that I went to get a cup of coffee. And when he saw me, he ratcheted down. And uh, I got two cups of coffee, brought one back, handed one to him. His name was Marcelo. And I knew that uh, he would accept it. Because when you offer a gift to a Shawara, they will take it in most cases. And then they have to give you something in return. That's part of their tradition. So he took it. We became sort of friends in the beginning, started talking. And he asked me, or uh, he was standing there, he says, who placed this tent here? And I sort of looked at Necta, and he said, see that big dead snag? He pointed to this tree, this dead snag. He says, it's right over your tent. If it falls, it will kill you. And I looked at it, he was right. Then he pointed to a rock ledge about 40 feet, 50 feet from us. And he says, if you were out of your tent last night, he said, there's a terrible snake that lives in there called an Awansi. And the snake would have killed you if you had been outside your tent. Well, I was outside my tent, but I had a fire going, smoke going. So about the time he said that, out of this rock ledge comes a snake 
tremendous burst of speed, riding high with his head up, probably six, seven feet in length. And immediately I saw it was the Aki snake, a snake that I'd feared all this time in Ecuador, but I had never seen. And I didn't know anything about, and no one else knew anything about. It comes riding out, goes right past us, headed towards the river. Luckily, we had a fire going. The fire, the smoke, it smoked him out. <clears throat> so at that point, he says, there's an Iwansi here. We've got to leave. And I didn't know what he was talking about. So we struck the tents and took off, and he led us deeper and deeper up the river, and then finally we stopped. I finally learned that the Iwansi was an evil spirit, <clears throat> or what they call a demon. And apparently... Necta's problem was with a bad shaman, what they call a Wawik. And this Wawik was an adversary of his, and he was trying to get even by killing uh, Necta. And if we had been sitting alone without a fire that night by our tent, that snake would have taken both of us out. And uh, the tree might have taken us out. So anyway, now I had this newfound friend who now wants to lead my expedition and he finds that uh, is not fit to lead it because he can't he put us in the wrong campsite and all that. To make a long story short, we became friends that day and uh, <clears throat> because I had come back to help a friend, Ashwara, I had been given permission according to this young man whose father was a shaman. I had been given permission to roam freely in the Cayenne that for years I was told not to go into. <coughs> Excuse me. And at that point, my life changed. I thought, okay, this is, forget the emeralds. Okay, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't bring myself to maybe find these emeralds create a big stir, a mining company would come in, they would devastate the land, the people's lives would be changed, and the jaguar would be hunted to extinction, and everything about this beautiful, wonderful life back there, a life of nature, and a life of something that the Western world has totally lost concept of, it would be changed overnight. So at that point, I made a decision I was going home, and the emeralds could stay where they were. <clears throat> and when Marcel found out that I was leaving, he said, you, you made it. He said, my father told me you would make this decision. And he says, the reason you didn't find the emeralds all those years ago is because your heart, your mind was not in the right place. But now it is. And he said, since you haven't found the emeralds, you would find yourself. And I did find myself that afternoon up there in the middle of nowhere. And after near-death experiences with the snake, with the tree, and at that point, I decided that I would leave the animals there. They were for the Shuaras, the tribe. They were for all, not for one. And at that point, I said goodbye to them, to Marcelo. We crossed the bridge went back down to Nabon, or back to Sakua, and I patted the neck on the shoulder, and I gave him my reading glasses, 
And he looked at me strangely and I said, this, these are for you to help you enjoy your new home. And we hugged each other. I haven't seen him since. I don't know what has happened back there, but it was an experience of a lifetime. I, I wouldn't change it for anything. All the hardships were there. And uh, I just, I felt good about myself and the transformation I went through. So, Lee, we're actually, we're actually at the end of our time, and we have to finish on time, unfortunately, but that you've just brought it to a beautiful conclusion, and I'm sure you are still benefiting from the emeralds that are in your heart that you've discovered for yourself. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. A great story, uh, well worth read, a physical adventure, a spiritual adventure with a beautiful transformational conclusion. So thank you, Lee, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. www.leeelders.com if you want to make contact with Lee. My guest next week is Lisa Osina, who has written a book called A Wolf Song, A World of Animal Spirits, Wolves, Two Young Women, and How Their Lives unfold i hope you've enjoyed today's show have a wonderful week it's peter tongue for awakening to conscious co-creation we hope that you found this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring please join host peter tongue for another edition of awakening to conscious creation next wednesday at 3 p.m eastern time noon pacific time on seventh wave network